If you are a chief executive officer, I want you to think of five CEOs you know, like, and trust, preferably those you know. Have those names in mind. I want you to list two to three adjectives that define them, and then name two to three verbs that come to mind as you think about them. When you finish, again, put these on paper and start looking for any similarities, commonalities, distinctions. What do you notice? Okay, if you're not a CEO, do the same thing, same exercise. Just pick five CEOs you've worked for or know very well. Again, do the same exercise. List some adjectives, list some verbs that describe them. Write them down, and what do you notice? I bring this up because our guest and his co-author did something similar, but on a much grander scale. The result? A framework which reveals four natural instincts of impactful CEOs. I'm thrilled to be talking with one of the pioneers and pace setters who sources interim executives for private and nonprofit firms. Bob Jordan is the co-author of Right Leader, Right Time, and our conversation about the FABS framework is coming up next. By the way, enter interimcfo.com or interimceo.com in your browser, and you'll be taken to interimexecs.com. Interimexecs, that's the firm founded by Bob Jordan and Olivia Wagner. Their new book is Right Leader, Right Time. My first question for Bob, how in the world does a person go from grad student dropout to building an Inc. 5000 firm to writing books and then finding the niche he's in now? I, I think I have like three origin stories. So I'll, I'll, the first origin story is dropping out of um, B school, grad school, because uh, uh, a friend had kind of popped an idea in my head that online services were coming around. He had bought a computer. He didn't know who to call with it. And so that turned into first business called online access. Um, uh, and, and I described that, you know, any mistake in business other than integrity breaches, but all of the basic mistakes I made, um, but eventually put me on the Inc 500 list. Um, that was one. And then after online access, I sold that um, completely serendipitous meeting with uh, a guy I barely knew, that determined my entire career. Uh, he was a guy who had a weird job title. He was an interim CEO. Arguably, he was one of, not the first in the U.S., and uh, Philip Monago became uh, my mentor, and he was the first CEO of Yahoo. And after he told me what he did, uh, this weird thing, you know, we parachute in with venture money. We had had this brief conversation and I came back home and I started buying these domains, interimceo.com, interimcfo.com, eventually a lot of them. And I hung out a shingle and I started doing gigs myself. Just real quickly, and if we have time, we'll come back to interim execs at the end, but uh, what's been some of the most gratifying aspect of that of that business? Gratifying is a great word because um, Olivia Wagner and I, my business partner and co-author, um, it started as kind of an experiment. It started as a free search engine because we live in a Google-driven world, right? And everyone expects information to be free. Total failure as a free search engine. That's really not what the world wanted, not the business world, not, not owners. They wanted our curation and they were willing to pay for it. So um, there was a lot of experimentation. We hit on the, we, we cracked the code about eight years ago when we created the RED team. RED stands for Rapid Executive Deployment. So over the years, we'd been approached by about 7,000 executives. Most didn't make the cut. But the top one or 2%, oh my God, these people, amazing, remarkable. And so we developed an ability that took us 
six years of pain, no revenue, um, and and kind of turned a switch on to being a matchmaker between organizations calling up and these remarkable executives. One of the engagements we had was with one of the Native American tribes in the U.S. and uh, and it was gratifying. We we brought exactly the right CEO they needed. The the tribe looks very much like a private equity fund. They had a portfolio of 20 companies. And they told us um, afterwards, they eventually um, kept the executive permanently, but they told us that we had caused a a, uh, betterment for the tribe that would last for generations. And that that their kind of the value of their holdings and their assets would go up in the billions of dollars. And it all started from the first action of bringing in the right leader. That warmed my heart because it went completely beyond money, which is we helped a community out and you can't put a price on that. I first came across your website and then of course I'm a little bit of a digger you, you, we, we were talking about the Colby, uh, cognitive index. So I, I'm one of those people who likes to do a little digging. And so I found your website first. Then I found, oh, you got a book coming out. So we're going to be talking about right leader, right time. But I need to get, I need to apologize because even though we're here to talk about right uh, leader, right time, which just came out this week. And for people who are listening to this show a year from now, I'm going to go ahead and say March. I'm going to put a timestamp, March uh, 2022. I owe you an apology. This is not your first book. You've written a couple others. So I just want to point those out. Can can you share the titles? Uh, and I'll share them at the end. But again, apologies for not reading those first. Oh, no no worries. No, the, the first book uh, was with a partner, my, my dear partner, Jim Camp, called Start With No. And uh, he passed away a few years ago, but he was arguably the best negotiation coach in the world. And he took me under his wing, another mentor of mine. Um, And uh, he had a system that was revolutionary. Um, Our our publisher, Random House, insisted on the title Start With No, because the only book that really was out before that, that everybody knew was called getting to yes. And, um, and, and Jim thought that that approach was, uh, it's it's its own conversation, but he thought the American concept of win-win negotiation was kind of ridiculous on the surface. And it was the starting point for a philosophy and a system that he taught that was remarkable. So that was the first book. And then, um, I did a, a book called How They Did It, Billion Dollar Insights from the Heart of America. And that was based on a series of 45 Q&A interviews with uh, remarkable company founders, entrepreneurs, as we say from the heartland, the Midwest. And uh, uh, I, I did have, I kind of had a chip on my shoulder because I'm a lifelong Chicagoan. And I really resented, because I was working always with early stage tech companies, I resented this idea that the only place technology, technology innovation occurs is Silicon Valley. And rather than just saying that to people, you know, that it's all around the world, it was like, you know, it'd be pretty cool to tell their stories. And so it was incredibly hard, but eventually got access to uh, the founder of Morningstar and, and the founder That's of right. Groupon. That's right. And uh, um, the CEO of Twitter, uh, and uh, um, Twitter wasn't Midwestern, but the CEO was right. uh, homegrown. Anyway, and so so that was that, and that was them telling their stories. This book, the current book, Right Leader, Right Time, uh, very different in that Olivia and I uh, researched, interviewed, wrote it ourselves. I, I could not fall back, if you will on Q&A to save us. It has a lot of interviews, but it's not a Q&A narrative in the book. I, I do want to talk about the elephant in the room real quickly. And Bob, push back. You're not going to offend me. So remember, remember, I found you and your website. And I thought, this is cool. 
So you already had a halo over your head. So uh, I, by the way, I got a media copy. Uh, and by the way, I did buy the copy. Uh, so I got the Kindle version. I think yesterday it came in. Uh, I think it went live yesterday. So as I was going through the the media copy, the rough draft, the last week or so, I did not know what I was going to expect. And then I thought, oh, we're getting into kind of assessments here. And so I wanted to confess to you up front that in the past, I've had a little bit of a skepticism, a little bit. I'm not going to name names, but there's a very well-known coaching firm nationally, maybe internationally, that has uh, an assessment. I'm not going to call it shallow, but I think it's a little bit overly simplistic. I will mention Chuck Blakeman. He has an assessment called the Apex something, and it's not bad. Uh, I'm a big fan of Chuck. Uh, I like his book. But as I read into your assessment of CEOs, which we're going to get into, I tried to break it. I tried to, you got the FABS framework. I tried to break it and I can't. So, so here I am, uh, personality assessments, a little skeptic, but I'm having a hard time having any issues with your book. So I've already kind of given an idea. I'm taking that as a compliment. Yes, you are. Yes. My first thought was in the book, how long did it take you and Olivia to even get this book? I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of meat in this book and I've already told you an email. I'm going to be reading it a second time. I also think every board member on the planet should read this book. I think every CEO should read this. I think every executive director in nonprofits should read this for reasons that will come up later. My question is, did it take you and Olivia quite a bit of time? I bet this took over a year to write, compile, research. Well, thank you for your kind words. I, I appreciate it because when you spend five years on something that you never intended or thought, you know, in the beginning was like, Oh, this is going to take a year. Um, uh, I, I guess I'm a slow learner because as I'm just now thinking of this with Jim camp, um, that was a seven year project. He, he would joke that became a international bestseller. It was translated into many languages and Jim would joke that I asked him for two years for permission to take his workbook and turn it into a, a real book, you know, a, a consumer book. And he said, no. Anyway, that was seven years. And then how they did it, you know, had this crazy idea, not realizing that all of these um, incredible company founders would just not respond or say no. That was four years. This one, when the idea came up with Olivia, I was thinking, it's totally in our control. I'm not waiting on any other person. We're going to be interviewing a lot of people, but it doesn't have to be, you know, a particular person. Um, I thought a year, five years. And at some point, you know, these things, at least for me, they take on a life of their own in the sense of becoming far more, uh, what's the word, sacred, uh, committed than simply this venal uh, I'm doing it for business or I'm doing it trying to sell a book that 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 can't be what drives you at some point. I think more generally that's true of people who are driven by purpose. Um, but it was clearly true in this case. It's just you couldn't sustain it that long because it would be crazy otherwise. This is a soft warm up to what those four buckets or the framework is. My opinion is that you and Olivia have worked with so many CEOs, so many executives, that I think this book started writing itself inside you all. That's an opinion. And I think that once you started committing this to paper, it what's probably wasn't as hard as maybe it turned out to be. That's That's conjecture. However, the four buckets... FABs, lightning round. What is the FABs framework? And is it okay if I call it framework or a, a mental model or a mental construct? Framework's um, a good idea. We use we use framework. Yeah. Fixer, artist, builder, strategist. 
that's Feb's. We we struggled for a long time with what the title of the book was. At first, we just thought maybe we just have to call it Fixer Artist Builder Strategist. And we had a wonderful editor, and and she kept saying no, no, no. And and as she was doing a great job editing us, she was like, "This is so obvious." Well, we were so close to it. It's like it's not obvious to us. And she said, "It's called Right Leader, Right Time." And we're like, "Oh, it's called Right Leader, Right Time." Um, but anyway, that it, it is fabs. And by the way. Um, in the process of the interviews we did in the book, we did about 80, most were fabs. We we very intentionally wanted a set of fixers, a set of artists, leaders, a set of builders, a set of strategists. But in addition, we had a group of psychologists, organizational psychologists, because those people are rigorously trained. Yes. And here we are just with an idea we've pulled out, you know, from our own ringside seat. Because here we are, we're matchmakers. We get calls from organizations. They have a leadership need, and we make this match. And then, because it's our contract, we're calling the board. We're calling the owners. Is everyone happy? Are you making progress? We're calling the executives or the team. Are you happy? Is this right for you? Are making progress? Well, with that ringside seat, we saw this and these distinct styles. We saw so much of what fails from leaders we never wanted to work with. Well, that's not the same as science. So it was gratifying because every psychologist we called, they would hear it and maybe they were just being charitable, but they were like, no, this makes sense. And so a number of people are quoted in the book. Um, and and But, but I, I would say it's rudimentary that we, alongside the book launch, are launching an assessment that's called FAB's Leadership Assessment. And that is meant to be rigorous, to put eventually science behind what we are saying here to help people discover their their dominant leadership mode. Do you remember how I said earlier I tried to break this? And let me read off a few names. Now, I gave you the names in advance. If If none ring a bell, that's completely okay. We'll skip them. Because as I went through every one of these names, it's like, I see where they fit. I was trying to break it by thinking, maybe they don't belong in one of these buckets, but every one of them does, some maybe two. Ed Stack, he's not technically the founder of Dick's Sporting Goods. It was his dad. Well, his dad started two stores. Ed took it from there. Uh, I'm pretty confident I could say that Ed was a builder. Uh, I mean, uh, I mean that he was just focused on the next hundred, the next, I mean, he wanted to build something big. Uh, Bill McDermott is a fascinating, if if you'd had Bill in your book, I would have been pretty impressed. Uh, Bill, uh, you don't hear his name a lot, but he's very low keyed. He at one time ran SAP and I would say Bill is a cross. I put him on, on purpose because I think he could be a fixer if he needed to. I would not call him an artist. I think he part strategist, part builder, because he used to run a large sales organization with Xerox. And it seems like everything he touched, it just got bigger and bigger. But he's unique. Jamie Dimon, you mentioned in your book, uh, by the way, kudos. I do not see Jamie necessarily as an artist, I don't really see him. Now, this may be controversial. I don't see him as a builder. Yeah, he does acquisitions, but when he came into J.P. Morgan Chase, they were already big. So when you make an acquisition, <laughs> it's like Mount Everest getting just maybe one inch bigger. I would call him more the strategist. But again, I'm I'm, I'm open to being wrong there. Uh, Hunter Harrison. Uh, I did not know about him until just a year ago. I interviewed his biographer. He's now one of my all-time favorite CEOs. He he took four railroads and made them successful. Even Bill Gates uh, at one time was the number one investor at Canadian National uh, Railroad when he was the CEO there. Everything he worked on. So I would call him the strategist slash fixer. Uh, Alfred Sloan, probably a builder. Uh, Alan Mulally is an interesting one. And I think... Alan's in your book as well mentioned. I would not call him an artist. 
I would not call him the builder. I think deep down inside, he is the strategist. Really, really good at bringing people uh, together. I think he's also a fixer as well. But keep in mind, he's an engineer by trade. So he's good at fixing. But I almost think his instinct is strategy. And then Peter Thiel, I, you're reading, I, I happen to know through an email that you're reading The Founders by Jimmy Sony, who's going to be on the show next week. Uh, Peter Thiel's a, a three-time reluctant CEO. Uh, I don't even think it's fair to call him a builder, even though PayPal exploded. And then you're nodding your head, no. I don't think he's an artist because it was somebody else on the team who really had, I would again call him the, he's a tricky one. I'm going to say strategist, not a fixer. And you really have to read the book. The chapter on the strategy is very in-depth. It's not trite. So even I thought I was a strategist. It was like, I only have the boxes checked off. So Peter Till, I'm not for sure about. So anyway, I want to throw those names out. And again, I cannot break your FABS framework. Every one of these men, and I, I'm sorry for not, le- I left out women. Uh, I could put Meg Whitman in there. I could, there are a ton of names I should have put in there. My bad. But did I get this right? Am I, am I warm, hot, in between? Well, uh, I, I think you're, you're absolutely on the, the right track. Some I would, Peter Thiel, I would put more artist category now, part of this is, you know, um, the folks on this list don't know them personally. Um, we're, we're moving from the model being self-discovery. So, for example, the, the process used for the interviews in the book was there was no advanced knowledge of questions. The first half of the interview was not trying to bias them to understanding what the thesis, the, the FABS framework was. So the first set of questions, a lot of discovery of their background and their leadership style. Then the FABS framework was presented to them to get their reactions. And, and if we had it right, because we, we had a premise with each one of those leaders in terms of what we thought. So a lot of this is self-discovery. I'll say also that, you know, what, what we put into the book is it's a little like DNA. Just four nucleotides make up all of biological life. You know, whether it's your Aunt Mary, the turtle, um, you know, the dog you're walking, just four nucleotides, four proteins in DNA. Okay. So any successful leader or every successful leader absolutely must have elements of fixer, artist, builder, strategy. They have to. The flip side is that there is no leader, nor has there have only been a few in history who who someone could say were equally talented. It's just not possible. Agree. You know, history would say, you know, Winston Churchill, yes, one of the greatest fixers in in all of government, um, a great artist in the sense that he was a word painter. How did he get the U.S. into the war because he delivered the series of speeches. We will fight them on the beaches, you know. And it, but he never he didn't do what Zelensky is doing now. He never he never tried to beat the U.S. up or say you have to come in. Nothing against Zelensky. I think he's proving to be a heroic yes. artist leader. Um, but but our premise is that all great leaders have a dominant style, and the more they embrace it and double down within it, the more successful you will see them being in combination with other traits they have to have. And the vast majority of executives of these thousands who have shown up on our doorstep, they are not particularly successful. And we think, we sometimes call this three Ds. There's dilution. Their effort is not focused. There are detours that are just they're, they're not explorations that lead to more. They just keep on being detours. And then there's a bit of delusion. Because even if you point it out to most leaders, they would say, oh, I'm not that. But at the same point, they're not reaching the heights. 
And yet there is this set of executives who are. I'm not, we're not trying to say this is open to everyone because I consider leadership of organization to be only one of millions of kinds of genius in the world. I don't think it's something everyone should aspire to, needs to. We, we celebritize it, but I don't think it needs to be that way. But our focus is, is on that one lens to try to help for leaders making better careers and for organizations to fire on more cylinders. I want to key in on some of the traits of the fabs, but before I do so, I mentioned your book to a CEO earlier this morning, and I'm envisioning in the future mentioning your book, giving a tie, you know, giving a copy away. And the question may come up as what's the, so what? And I want to read a couple of quotes or stats that's in the last chapter of your book. And these are phenomenal. Only about 5 to 10% of us have a genetic predisposition to become leaders. Interesting. And I'm not going to dispute it. About 90% of leaders are in the wrong job. And when it comes to sustained growth, 86 out of 100 leaders fail. I think when you cover this book from beginning to end, read it from beginning to end, you're going to agree with these comments or the, these facts. So having said that, I want to hit just a few key terms, verbs, adjectives, one-liners. Let's start with the fixers. Who are they? The fixer is wired for turnaround. This is the person who loves going into the burning building. The difference between what we define as fixer as opposed to a leader who a crisis occurs and they solve it, is the fixer, it, it's like being an adrenaline junkie. Once they've fixed the first organization, they can't go back. You know, I, I think, uh, Mark, you have wiring as a fixer. You understand that if somebody shows up and says, you know, things are going pretty good. We just kind of need you to maintain. There's no way that's going to turn you on. It's not no. going to happen. That's the fixer wiring, which is that they are drawn to this heroic expression of, of crisis solving over and over. And it is not the way every leader is wired. I actually read the S first, the strategist thinking that's who I am. Then I read the fixers. Like, oh, wait a minute. This more defines me. So let's go to the second one. And it's the artist. And before I let you jump in, is it true that finding artists may be fewer and far between in your experience? I'm, uh, that's been mine. Maybe I talked to the wrong people. Are they more? Are they rare, or is just we don't know about them? No, you're right. They're rare. They they are the rarest of the four as dominant trait. Um, now our wiring, being human, is we all have a a creative and innovative ability. Um, I will also say for a lot of people, it gets pounded out of us as children. When, when, as your left brain develops and you need this critical thinking facility, you know, you, you teach your child, don't cross the street. Now you see this car coming. You have to have a critical ability to correct. But what happens is, is that all those wonderful creative impulses to draw and to to paint and to play the piano or whatever, as the critical brain develops, it starts criticizing those things, which they don't look perfect and they don't sound perfect. Uh, artist is by far the rarest, and it is also the most conflicted. It is the one of the four that when you ask an artist, and believe me, I am dominant artist mode through and through, uh, to ask fellow artist leaders, it's it's almost as if the reaction you get is, yes, I know. So you're a nonconformist. Completely. Yeah. And in my spare time, I paint. I've been painting uh, um, canvases for 30 years. Uh, I'm not in my home office studio, but if I was, you'd see a lot of canvases behind me. What, whatever it is that you do all the time, it doesn't feel like work, does it? No, it doesn't feel like work, but you are compelled to do it even at your peril. True. The artist leader, it's, um, 
it, it is a drive that doesn't necessarily maximize on income, power, opportunity. And that's not true of, of all leadership modes. Um, it, it also has a overruling trait, which is you can't do one thing at one time. And really successful leaders who are dominant artist mode, when we would say to that to them, we would say, do you have to work on more than one thing at a time? Uh, one of the guys we interviewed, Dave Ormesher, he was like, yes, this is me. And this is a guy who has successfully grown a marketing services firm at the same time as launching a program in Rwanda to solve for genocide by training a generation, a class of entrepreneurs in the country, committing 10 years to go once a quarter while running the Lyric Opera, the chairman of the board of the Lyric Opera in Chicago, on and on and on. And when I said, do you need multiple canvases? He said, this is me. He said, I can't just. And I said, I know, I know how you feel. The B is I'm the furthest thing from it. Uh, the builder as Dan Sullivan of the strategic coach would say, he talks about big checks. I love builders because they're the ones who write me checks on a monthly basis. Uh, describe the builder. Builder is the mode in which every single person who is a leader in the organization says, I'm a builder. Got it. Appreciate it. However, we mean this in a specific sense, which is that you take product, service, team, division, whatever it is, and you, you have market as mantra. You see this goal that you're going to take the team to through building process system structure. And when you reach that high goal, it is highly likely the builder is going to leave. Could be an IPO, could be a division that's achieved a lot of success. We mean builder in the sense that that person would then best be used. New division, new product, new service. They have to do it again. They need another high peak. And when that, when the first thing is, has achieved scale, they're out of there. The, way I like to manipulate builders is if I think they're not going fast enough. Again, I'm a non-builder. When I think they should be going faster, I love to say to them, this is impossible. It works. <laughs> You're smiling. It works. It, I'm, I'm serious. Boy, you got that psychological manipulation down. I, yeah, I, I can't true. help it. And then the last one is, so when I read the book, uh, I read the first chapter. I think, I think there's a chapter, there's an introduction, then there's the last three chapters. So the first four that start with the fabs may start with chapter two. I read the strategist first thinking, this is me. And then I start reading, it's like, wait a minute, part of this is me. So I did read the strategist first. So I want to hear a very good, complete, thorough response on who is the strategist because I think we're going to hear some things that's beyond what we typically think of a strategist. The strategist operates at scale. The strategist is mission and purpose is, is just, it's in their core DNA. And to be able to operate at scale, what we mean by that is a leadership position in an organization that is either incredibly complex or at uh, large size. Both of those definitions, complexity and size, uh, you know, Stephen Covey, he wrote the wonderful book, Seven yes. Habits, Highly Effective People. And he used this phrase, span of control. What was within a personal span of control and not? Fixer, artist, builder, uh, those roles tend to be within span of control. The strategist is not. The strategist is operating at a thousand employees, ten thousand, a hundred thousand employees, but it is a very particular kind of wiring that can cause an organization to have dramatic, dramatically good results. And you can't do it through the force of a personal relationship. You have to be good at other things. You have to be good at a management team and how it filters down. You have to be great at mission and purpose. One of the strategists we interviewed, he uh, said something we thought was brilliant, which is he said, 
his name is Mahesh Samlia, and he ran an insurance company with uh, 14,000 people. And he said, you know, the top performers, they take care of themselves. They don't really need to be managed. They're, they're going to excel any goal you give them. He said, the bottom performers, everyone knows what's going to happen. He said, but there's this vast middle. And that vast middle, the strategist has this challenge of how are you going to align them? How, how do you move that organization uh, such that you're going to have incredible success? A couple of more quick questions about Fabs. And I don't know if I'm going to ask this question very well. So I'm thinking of the three parts of the human mind. There's the cognitive part of the mind. Uh, there's the affective, A-F-F-E-C-T-I-V-E, the affective, the, our drive, our, 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 our personality styles. And then the third part of the mind is the cognitive part of the mind, which almost no one brings up unless you know of the work of Kathy Colby. How do those how do those three parts of the mind have you noticed any I mean any hint of correlation between those three parts of the human mind and fabs? I think I know the answer, but I want to hear it from you. I it's a great question, Mark, and um, I'll 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 I I would almost bet. Um, it's a great, unique question. We have not been asked and we won't get asked again. Okay, so kudos to you. Um, I do not think there will be any correlation with cognitive, which is your raw intelligence. Exactly. Because all of these styles are what they are. It is because you and I are both lovers of, of Colby, of, of the cognitive profile. Yes. Um, it's one of the only profiles that I find incredibly valuable in work. We swear by it ourselves. And it, it has some models for us as we go to develop FAB's leadership assessment. We absolutely, I, I could put money on it that as our research comes in based on people taking the survey, that the affective part of this in terms of personality, how you are wired is going to play in. That's not to say that there's a variety of personality in every single style but we kept on coming up with so many descriptors based on the interviews that we were doing that that is what is getting baked in, at least at the moment, into figuring out correlations um, for how people are wired uh, that, that just it feels to us like it will. So, for example, you know, as you said earlier, uh, describing me as artist. There absolutely is something to the artist that there is renegade, outsider, nonconformist that goes with this ability to, to create and to be compelled to create. Um, I, I wrote a post because I love movies. And so I do see leadership lessons in different movies. And I wrote something about the Oscars. And uh, I love the movie Power of the Dog. Uh, did you like it? Hate it? See it? Not see Haven't it. seen it yet, but it's on the list. Okay. Well, there's there's a particular character in the movie who clearly is an outcast, uh, outsider. Um, but it's very interesting, which is his creativity is off the charts. And it is it is a pivotal part of the movie. And... For many people who see this movie, he won't be easily likable or relatable. Um, but that absolutely so. So I do believe that the affective component here is uh, going to come out. I think that's a great question. You don't use this terminology, but this concept comes up. It's the dark side of Babs. And before I ask my question in its entirety, I could easily ask this question to the Colby people or the predictive index people. So I'm not picking on the FABS framework. Having said that, can there ever be a misuse, overuse, or underuse of some of these natural instincts within FABS? And I hope I asked that question adequately. It's a great question. And 
to my mind, the answer is absolutely yes. And we're, we're not going to glorify leadership in general or this framework as saying that people are perfect or we've identified a people above reproach. We haven't. And the abuse of any style um, uh, could be evil. Uh, you know, we use a word fixer. Uh, a lot of people in business proudly will own that. But in politics, that's not a great word. Right. Um, and even in business, you know, we cite the example of Chainsaw L. Al Dunlop was was called in to turn the organization around. Well, he had a playbook, which was fire half of all the employees, uh, fake the financials, and you're good to go. Um, it's evil. And and we don't even think the standard playbook for fixer is necessarily slash and burn in the first place. All of these styles taken to extreme or where the individual does not have a governor, does not answer to a board, to stakeholders. Um, strategist, of course, we read this in the papers every day because leaders of large organizations, um, you know, we cite an example in the book, the former CEO of Wells Fargo. Uh, you know, if you look on YouTube, the Senate testimony of, uh, you know, this Wells Fargo CEO, it, it's laughable or pathetic how he tried to dodge responsibility for running the company when it was clearly committing fraud by opening up millions of accounts uh, that customers had never authorized. And he was later barred uh, for life from serving in a bank. Um, so each one of these styles has this, you know, I, I, look, I was a big fan of Elizabeth Holmes from Theranos. And frankly, we need, want more yes. examples of women, yes. powerful roles. I have two daughters. I, I want this more than, than anything else. Uh, artist mode. Yes, absolutely. But in combination with paranoia and secrecy and uh, it just, it just led to something which was a falsification. Um, now, you look at, you know, I've read Steve Jobs' biography, Walter Isaacson. It's a, a wonderful book. And, and you know, Steve was getting up on stage with products that were not fully baked. And, and basically, they were faking it. Um, but those weren't blood tests that, you know, were attached to real life patients. I would also add that I, I generally work with CEOs of businesses $75 million and under. And I think you and I can agree that the CEO, the founder who gets you to that first 25 million, even the first 50 million, probably not going to be the CEO that should be running the business at a hundred to 500 million. It's just a different skill set, And that's a, that's to me a, a case of maybe trying to overuse of an existing trait that just does not exist for that next level. And I still believe that the CEO who is very self-aware, which you bring up in the last three chapters, uh, I just think this book is such a big help of, you know, where is my place in the organization? I could spend more time on these, on these fabs buckets, but I want to wrap up by saying this book is not just for leaders. And I'm going to, I'm going to give you my pitch. This is really weird. I'm giving you a pitch that this book is not just for CEOs, board members. Can I tell you a quick story? It's, it's an ancient uh, Hebrew story, but we're going to modernize it. We're going to, we're going to make it more layperson ish. So you've, you've got the good guys fighting the bad guys. So Han Solo is the general out on the field, and he has his army behind him. They're committed. They're dedicated. Everyone's in harmony. They're the good guys. The bad guys are the bad people. We'll just leave it at that. Well, up on a hill, you have this chairman of the board. Everyone likes him. He, he's kind of very grandfatherly. And he's observing what's going on. And here's what's weird in this story. When his arms are up in the air, the good guys are winning. When the arms are down, the bad guys are winning. Well, guess what? There are two analysts 
that are observing this. They're observing what's going on down in the valley. They're observing their chairman of the board. And they look at one another, their eyes meet, and they kind of like, yeah, we got this. So they pull up a Herman Miller chair, and they set down the chairman of the board, and they both keep his arms raised, and the good guys win, and everyone lives happily ever after. Now, why would I bring up that story for a leadership book? Well, I do not view myself as the leader as presented in this book. However, I do view myself as someone who supports the leader, and I think I'm pretty good at it. I'm the guy, by the way, holding up the left arm. So my question, it's not really a question, but I would ask you when you do speaking engagements in the future, also focus on the people supporting, helping, working for these gifted FABs leaders. I happen to be drawn to builders. We connect very well. So I think there's a place in the conversation to talk about this book, not in the context of leaders, the people who are supporting them. Am I, is, am, am, am I giving you a good idea for the future? It's a great idea. And what you're, I appreciate it because what you're reinforcing, you know, when you do something like this, it's, it's such a labor of love and you have no idea if it is crazy, valid, whatever. But, you know, what you're reinforcing is that in a number of points in the book, I mean, in the modern world, lots of us serve clients and it is not necessarily inside of a structure the way it was in your grandparents' time, which is these large hierarchical organizations. And that's what there was. You, you were in an organization or another organization and you served. It was so clear what a product was, what a service was. And for most of us now, that's not the way work is. And what we do is is a lot of people, they they serve a stakeholder, they serve a client, a team, a project, whatever it is. And it's going to change, maybe inside an organization, but maybe it is that you're on your own. And so what you're describing, Mark, the way I look at you is, is that you, we say in the book, it's arriving and not arrived. It's a Zen kind of thing, which is you figured out your highest and best use. And that absolutely is an act of leadership. It's not that it's ever over. It's not that it's ever complete, that you have no challenges. That's not what we're saying. But you are at a point where you absolutely, as we say in the book, you keep doubling down inside of this thing that you know, it's just, it's hardwired in you now that you are committed to this way that you serve. And that within that, you know, the other two things we would say is you're not hiding. You are out there being authentic and that your collaboration is really powerful. And those are the elements of leadership that, that we need to see. And they, they sound obvious, but they're mostly lacking. I want to wrap up by let's plug the heck out of your firm. What do you want the world to know about your amazing organization. We run an organization called Interim Execs where we match, uh, and it's not all for-profit. We, we've done a lot of great work for nonprofit organizations. So, you know, we earn our karma points, um, uh, matching organizations with great leadership um, to support the book, Right Leader, Right Time, and the FAB's leadership assessment. A new site is launching called rightleader.com. Which I'm signed and, up for. I can't wait to take it. Great. Thank you. And uh, and I'm going to be very anxious. I'm going to be very eager to talk with you about that because I know your Colby score. Um, and and we think that will uh, bring this ability, this capability that we have to bring great leadership to bear for organizations to more um, places around the world. I always ask everyone who's on the show, what are some of your favorite books? I, you've already mentioned a few books, uh, but what are some of the books that have been impactful to you over the years or even recently? Yeah, my, my number one recent book is uh, David Brooks' uh, Second Mountain. Um, I think it is uh, marvelous. It, it, um, what he means by Second Mountain, First Mountain is all of the things you do 
for status and money and power and career. And, and those are legitimate. I'm, I'm not saying they're not. But when you when you reach a level of success, uh, it's good to get to the second mountain, which is to say the point where you become committed. And it is far beyond and above you. And it was really validating for me because I realized that while, for example, you know, my company interim execs, I mean, it was an experiment. And, and my work before that was very transactional. I was committed to clients. Absolutely. Um, but it was interesting to read David Brooks because I realized, Oh my God, am I committed? And, and th- there was some point that crossed that it, it doesn't have to do with the money that to be in this position where I'm so grateful that I can be between an organization and this wonderful leader and to help cause something. It, it's far beyond money. It has nothing to do with money. Um, to bring good to the world, to try to do that, that that's remarkable. And, and, uh, so second mountain. I want to give Olivia, your co-author, a, a quick shout out. What might be her book that she would mention if I were asking her? Well, maybe because I drummed it into her for so long, but Jim Camp's book, Start With No, I think she would say was pretty formative for taking a fresh, you know, someone uh, pretty much straight out of college and to give them the tools, real live tools to to be in the business world and to have a system to understand how to do what we all need to do, which is to negotiate. I I'm pretty sure that one would would be on her list. Congratulations on the book. This is a book that I think is fresh. It's refreshing rather. It's it's I think a book that needed to be written, although there's some similar books, kind of fringes. I think this just goes a little bit deeper about what that leader who that leader should be and what they should be doing and following those natural instincts. Well done. And again, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Mark. It's been a pleasure. I'm honored. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. Bob Jordan, again, thank you very much. Please give your co-author, Olivia Wagner, a high five for me. The book again, Right Leader, Right Time, five stars easily. And like I said earlier, this book is for those of us serving leaders as well. It's not just for chief executive officers, uh, board members. You need to read this too. Uh, By the way, the website again is interimexecs.com. And there is a ton of content on that site, blog posts, case studies, and some very inspiring videos on their evergreen pages on that website. Guys, we need to call this a wrap. I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf.